We'll be in Matthew chapter 4 this morning. Matthew chapter 4. And we'll start reading together in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. This is a painting based on this story called Temptations of Christ. It's by Botticelli in 1480. And you've seen it if you've ever been to the Vatican and gone into the Sistine Chapel. This painting is on the north wall inside of the Sistine Chapel. And down here in the front, all these characters you can see are a lot of symbolic people, a lot of symbolic items and imagery, but the temptations are across the top of the painting. You can see all three of them up there, starting at the top left. I know it's small, but starting at the top left up there, you can see Jesus next to this creepy uh, depiction of Satan looking down at a pile of rocks, and Satan is uh, is tempting Jesus to turn the stones into bread. In the top middle, you see Jesus and Satan standing on top of the temple, and Satan is tempting Jesus to jump off so that God will save him. And then finally, over on the top right, you see Satan offering Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if Jesus will just bow down and worship him. And you can barely see it, but in the very top corner, just behind Jesus, you can see the angels that are waiting to tend to him when the temptation is over. We just read from Matthew chapter 4, and in context, what that means is Jesus was just baptized in Matthew chapter 3, and he's about to launch his formal ministry by preaching the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. So here, at the very beginning of it all, the Holy Spirit brings Jesus out into the wilderness to be tested, and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights out there alone. At the end of it, Satan shows up to tempt Jesus, and The strange thing in this story is that the temptations are not exactly what you would expect. We know that Jesus faced every temptation that we face in his life. Hebrews 4 says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he didn't sin. And so throughout his life, Jesus was tempted with everything we are. But here, these temptations are strange. This is Satan's big chance before Jesus' ministry gets off the ground to come in and try and derail things from the start. And he doesn't choose to tempt Jesus with lusting or lying or with gossip or gluttony, things that we're used to being tempted with. 
The key to understanding why he chooses these three strange temptations comes in the first words out of his mouth in verse 3. Satan says, if you are the son of God, and he says it again with each temptation. And we're going to look at that, but what you can see is that Satan tips his hand here at the beginning by showing the source of all three of these temptations. It's identity. It's about identity. Satan says, if you're the son of God, what he's saying is, I know how the son of God is supposed to act. I have a version in my head of the son of God. And if you're really him, here's what you do. All three temptations, they start with this conniving little word, if. And as we've been talking about all month, if is a powerful word. It allows us to envision something that doesn't exist yet. If something were to happen in the future, to cast out our imagination and dwell in it to help us make decisions now. And Satan, one of the most evil things about Satan is the way he corrupts language, the way he weaponizes words. And here he uses this word if to imagine a vision of the Son of God, and then he tells Jesus how that version of the Son of God should act. So as we look through each of these temptations, keep in mind as we're looking at these three things, they're all really an attack on Jesus' identity as the Son of God and the mission that that entails. So let's start up here in the top left with the first temptation. And let me ask you a simple question. Why is it sinful to turn stones into bread? This is Satan we're talking about. Everything he ever tells you is wrong and bad. And here he tells Jesus, turn the stones into bread. What's wrong with that? Why is it sinful to miraculously make bread? I mean, other than the fact that it's Satan suggesting it. Jesus, he later miraculously creates bread in the the Gospel of Matthew, right at the feeding of the 5,000. He creates bread out of nothing to feed a hungry crowd. So the miracle of making bread, that's not the problem here. Why did Satan pick this? Well, remember, these are attacks on identity, and Satan is claiming he knows how Jesus ought to act. And the first thing about the Son of God, he says, if you're the Son of God, here's the first thing you should know, according to Satan. He doesn't go hungry out in the desert when he's all-powerful, and he can easily create the means to sustain himself. The Son of God can create his own comfort, his own safety and self-sufficiency, so there's no reason he should bother facing earthly hardships or enduring human weaknesses, right? Well, look at what Jesus is doing out here in the desert in the first place. The Spirit led him there to be tempted by the devil, but first he spends 40 days and nights fasting. No food. What is fasting? Fasting is intentional weakness. It's intentional, self-imposed weakness. Depriving ourselves of earthly pleasure or earthly necessities even, just to remind ourselves how deeply we need God. And so why is it sinful for Jesus to turn stones into bread here? Well, first, because he's fasting. He's practicing the spiritual discipline of self-deprivation and weakness. But the temptation here is more than that. It's not just take the easy way out and break your fast. It's deeper. Satan is tempting Jesus to be self-sufficient instead of relying on God. To neglect his identity as the obedient son of God who looks to his father in faith for sustenance. And Jesus quotes this verse from Deuteronomy in response. He says, this is a verse that says, there's more to existence than mere survival. There's more to sustenance than mere food. Do you believe that? Do we understand what that means? People need God, not just bread. God's children rely on him and not on themselves. The son of God draws his identity and his power from the father. So next, Satan takes Jesus to the top of the temple, what we see here in the middle. 
This is one of the tallest buildings, the tallest building in the city, and it would have been the most populated area where everybody could see, uh, where you had the most visibility. And Satan quotes scripture back at Jesus, right? Jesus quoted scripture, so Satan quotes scripture. I think Satan tries to twist scripture against us all the time. He says, he quotes a verse from Psalms that says, God promised he would protect you. And he tells Jesus, if you believe it, why don't you jump off the temple and prove it? He uses the word if here, if you're the son of God, to conjure up his own dark version of the son of God and says, if you are the son of God as I envision him, perform this meaningless test and force God's hand. Jump off the temple and make him save you to prove his faithfulness. And Jesus refuses again, but just like with the bread, what's sinful about this here? Trusting God is good. Believing in God's promises is good and relying on them and taking leaps of faith. I mean, that's a good thing to do. Well, we've talked about this for the last three weeks, every week. Jesus never did miracles that did not have a spiritual purpose to help the person who was receiving the miracle or the audience who was watching the miracle believe. Jesus loved to heal diseases. He loved to cast out demons and calm storms, but he never did it unless there was a spiritual benefit for the people. Jesus didn't want a movement of people who were there to get their diseases cured. He didn't want to build a movement of people who were there for the free bread. He came to build a movement of people who were there to get their souls saved from evil and death. And so every time he did signs and miracles, he knew he was risking attracting people for all the wrong reasons, and so he was really careful about it. And here Satan says, jump off the temple and let God stop your fall. Not only is that putting God to the test for the sake of putting God to the test, which as Jesus points out is wrong, the Son of God, if he did that, he wouldn't be acting like the Son of God. He wouldn't be doing the mission of the Son of God according to the identity of the Son of God. Satan is attacking Jesus at the level of his identity, saying, go ahead and attract a bunch of sign seekers and miracle worshipers. Take away their choice to love you and force them to by doing this impressive miracle. And Jesus won't do it. He knows who he is. And that brings us to this third temptation up in the top right corner. Now, even though this one seems like the easiest of the three, bow down and worship Satan, no. Okay, <laughs> it seems like the easiest one. I have a feeling this, was, this, this temptation of the three caused Jesus by far the most pain. Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and offers to give them to him if Jesus will just bow down and worship Satan. Now, on the one hand, worshiping Satan is the ultimate act of evil. Nothing could possibly be farther from God's will. Nothing could be more wicked and unholy. But on the other hand, look at what's being offered in exchange here. In John chapter 12, Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. And I don't think that's a metaphor. I think Satan is literally in control of our fallen world. He commands his evil forces against us in the spiritual war that's going on around us all the time. And here he's offering to surrender. The Bible is clear that Satan is here. He's real. He's on earth. He's trying to tempt us. But here he offers to surrender and end this war, to give back all the hostage souls that he's influencing and attacking and starving into the hands of their creator who loves them. And it's even more than that. This is a chance during this temptation for Jesus to avoid going to the cross. It's the answer to his prayer in the garden for God to take this cup of suffering away from me if there's any other way. Well, here's the other way. Here's the chance. 1 John 3 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And Satan says, go ahead, you can have it all. I'll be done. 
I won't tempt them anymore. I won't take any of them away from you. Surely, if you're the son of God, you take that deal. Surely, if you came for the sake of saving human souls, that's what you do. Well, did you notice in this third temptation where Satan places the word if? He doesn't lead with if you're the son of God. He asks it in a different way. It's a different attack on Jesus's identity. Instead of saying, if you're my version of what I think the son of God is, here he says, if you'll just bow down and worship me. In other words, you clearly know who you are. You've resisted these first two temptations. You know your mission. But even in spite of that, if you'll lay it aside, if you'll quit trying to be the son of God you've shown yourself to be, I will give you everything. I think Satan in this story is showing hints of desperation. I think he's picked up on why Jesus came to earth and what it is that Jesus is going to do. And here he's willing to surrender his side in the spiritual war, give back every soul if Jesus will quit his mission and abandon his identity. And Jesus says, no. Jesus says, I mean, listen to this. Jesus says, there's something that's more important to me than saving every soul on earth. Jesus says, there's a greater point of my identity that is higher than destroying all the works of the devil in a moment. And what does he say it is? Worshiping God and serving God alone. And so the story of the temptation of Jesus, it goes by quick. It's just a short little story and it ends in the same way that the cosmic spiritual war is going to end, that time and reality itself are going to end. Jesus says, away from me, Satan. And Satan goes, just like that. So don't picture this story as a contest between Jesus and Satan. Pay attention to how it ends. Jesus says, I'm done, you can go. And Satan goes, and that's it. It's not like Jesus has to fight and drive him away. He dismisses him and he leaves. Satan was never at all a threat to Jesus in this story. What he was trying to do was twist Jesus' identity to make Jesus a threat to himself. And every time that Jesus says no, or every time Jesus says no, he says, if I am the son of God, if that's who I am, then I don't act according to anybody else's script, anybody else's version of me or conform to their expectations. I don't let anyone else tell me who I am or what God called me to do. I know my mission. I won't stray from it no matter what you offer me in exchange. Comfort, security, popularity, safety, a path to avoid being murdered on the cross, a free pass to save humanity from the dominion of Satan himself. There is nothing that makes Jesus waver in his identity and his mission. What about us? What can we learn today from watching Jesus in this story? Well, the first thing we can learn about this story, because it's, it's got Satan as a character as well. The first thing we can learn is that Satan is powerful, but he has no new tricks. Satan, throughout the Bible, every time you see him acting, he reuses the same lies over and over and over again. And he does it because they keep working over and over again. But when you read the Bible and you see how he works, you realize Satan has a very short playbook. And when we see how he tempted Jesus, we see one of his best tactics on display, one that I think he uses against us all the time, appealing to a twisted misrepresented version of our identity as children of God. Instead of asking this question, if you are the son of God, he phrases it like this. If you're really a child of God, you would act like this. Have you ever felt in your heart a sort of nagging anxiety 
like an overwhelming just burden of anxiety or some sort of deep guilt that sits in your heart that starts with this phrase, I have. If I was really a child of God, if I was really a Christian, I'd be doing blank. I want to tell you and be perfectly clear this morning that when you hear that, when you hear something about your identity in Christ, whether you're a child of God, whether you're truly a Christian, that starts with the word if, you are hearing the same voice that Jesus heard in the wilderness. What you're hearing is the voice of Satan, our enemy. And he's trying to use the same method he used against Jesus against you. The reason I know that is because your identity as a child of God does not depend on anything. There is no if in front of your identity as a child of God. You are or you're not. We're all guilty of sin. We can accept the blood of Jesus that redeemed us. And that's the end of it, period. There is no if. There can be no other condition. But so often we walk around in our lives carrying the weight of Satan's if. For me, a lot of the time when this happens, it has to do with spiritual disciplines, with spiritual habits. Satan says to me, if you were really a child of God, you would spend more time reading the Bible than you do. You have so much time that you waste every day. You could spend all of that time praying and reading the Bible, but you don't. If you were really a child of God, you would. You'd pray for an hour every day like all the church fathers. What is it you're doing with your time that's so valuable instead of that? If you were really a child of God, you would fast. You would listen to more Christian music. You'd build more spiritual habits. If you're really a child of God, why don't you do any of that? Why aren't you good enough? He says that to me all the time. Have you ever heard that? This if, if you were really a child of God. It's not just spiritual discipline. Sometimes Satan brings up, he uses this if and brings up all the good works that we could be doing instead. You want to talk about anxiety? Think about all the good works that we could be doing right now instead of sitting here in this room. All the people in our town, in our communities, in our world that need help. Help that we are capable of giving them. Think about all the resources in this room in terms of the time that we have, the power, the money, the expertise. And think of all the needy people in our city, in our country, and in our world. If you were really a child of God, you'd think you'd be out there helping them. You'd think that you would give away all your money and not have so many nice things. If you were really a child of God, you'd sell your house. You'd give to all those causes you keep hearing about. You'd volunteer in all your spare time. If you're really a child of God, why don't you quit your job and go be a missionary? Why don't you start a ministry to feed the homeless? If you're really a child of God, run for office. Go work for a church. Get a job that's more spiritual. Does Satan ever whisper any of these ifs into your heart? It's not that these are bad things. It's that they're not conditions. Trying to make your identity a condition of the good works that you do. To always attack you and burden you with anxiety and guilt. To overwhelm you with your inadequacy to do all the good works this world needs. Jesus is an example for us this morning. This is a lesson about who you are. About your identity and your security, and your salvation. There is no if. You are a child of God, and that's not conditioned on anything. Now, our good works flow out of our love for God and our gratitude and joy at our redemption, but you have to get the order straight in your head. They come afterwards. They're not to earn a status that we've already been promised. It's not just an internal pressure. 
I don't just hear this word if in my head. I hear it out loud too in the world around me and I bet you do too. You know, Satan will speak through any voice that he can get a hold of, even human voices, even our voices if we let him. And we hear this if coming from the world too all the time, from people who don't believe what we believe, who are trying to put conditions on our faith and tell us how we should act as Christians. Offering their opinions about what real Christians should be doing. You see this all the time on Facebook. You see it all the time on all of social media. You hear it on the news and on TV shows. I hear it all the time in conversations with my friends. If these Christians were really following Jesus like they say, they would do fill in the blank. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you hear this? If the Christians were really following Jesus like they say, none of them would be rich. They'd all take a vow of poverty. They must not believe in what they're selling. If they were real, they'd take in all the refugees. They'd volunteer at all the hospitals. They'd, tend to the, they'd take care of the backlog in foster care and adoption. If the Christians really believe what they say, they'd get all the homeless off the streets. The world is happy to put a thousand conditions on your salvation if you let it. The world would delight in putting an if between you and God. If you're a Christian... If you're really a Christian and you want to let the world interpret that for you, they'll tell you how you should vote. They'll tell you how you should feel about everything, about immigration, about the definition and roles of men and women, about marriage, about COVID and the vaccine, about the military, about everything, anything that Satan can use to put between you and God. He'll make it a condition of being a Christian and of your faith. And the world is happy to supply a voice for him to do that. If all the Christians were really following Jesus, they would act like I think they should. I want to show you another painting by Botticelli. This one is called The Crucifixion. But in a lot of ways, this is a sequel to the painting we just looked at. Botticelli was painting the temptation of Christ again. As Jesus hung on the cross, do you remember what they said to him? Satan's if never left Jesus for his entire life. He never quit tempting Jesus to redefine his identity and his mission right up until the very end. As Jesus hung on the cross, dying for the sins of the world, Satan used human voices to call out, if you're really the son of God, this is not how you should be acting. If you're really the son of God, come down and save yourself. Prove your power. Make your own way. Don't trust in God's plan. Act and be self-sufficient for yourself. Just like in the wilderness at the beginning, all the way to the cross at the end. The world was trying to put a condition on Jesus and an if in front of his mission, and Jesus never wavers. The lesson for us in this story about Jesus fighting against temptation till the end, about Jesus clinging to his identity, is this. No one gets to tell you who you are. No one gets to tell you what you believe. No one gets to tell you how you should act except for your Father in heaven. No one, not me, not anybody on this stage or any stage, nobody on the news, nobody that you read on the internet, none of your friends, your family, no one except for your Father in heaven gets to tell you who you are or how you should act. Satan tried to use the word if to redefine the Son of God on his own twisted terms and Jesus shut it down. And so when we hear that attack in our own heads against our own identity as children of God, trying to distract us from our mission, trying to overwhelm us with anxiety or with guilt about the state of the world, we follow the example of Christ. We look to our Father's version of us 
instead of the world's version of us. When we look for our identity, we look to the word of God, not to the world's twisted caricature of our faith. You might be thinking through some of the things that I've been listing, just like we did when we first read this story, and think, what's wrong with turning stones into bread? What's wrong with trusting God? What's wrong with doing all the good things that we've been talking about? I know my identity is secure in Christ, and so those are all good things. And as Christians, we should be doing good things. Christianity is about doing good things, right? Not really. Not at all. Christians don't exist to do good things. That's not who we are. That's what the world thinks Christianity is. That's what Satan wants us to think Christianity is, but Christianity is not about doing. It's about being. Christianity is not a religion about doing good works. It's a religion about being saved by somebody else. We should be following God's plan for our lives, and God has prepared good works in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2.10 says, We're God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You can listen for his voice. You can follow for his calling. Christians do good things, but that's not what proves that we're saved. That's not the condition of our faith, and it's not the point of what we believe. Think of all the blind men that Jesus didn't heal. Think of all the slaves he didn't set free. Think of all the unjust laws he didn't challenge. All the precious human souls that he loved, that he left behind in Satan's dominion. And why? All for the same reason. Because he knew what God's plan was and he was obedient to his father. If it was enough for him, it's enough for me. In the life of Jesus and in this story, we see our identity is not conditioned on any standard but God's. It's not rooted in the world's broken morality. It's not even rooted in logic and reason or in emotion. It's rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ and in the unchanging word of God. As we finish this series called If, asking this question, Lord, if it's you, we have to understand that when it comes to our identity as Christians, there's no condition There's no if when it comes to who you are. The only if is who Jesus is. If it's him, that says everything you need to know about you. If he is who he says he is, that changes everything for you. Let's all stand together as we close in this series. And I want to finish here by reading to you, just reading to you from the word of God. The words that we're about to read together, this is the best news you'll ever hear. This is the most important thing you'll hear all week. So pay attention and listen to words that are true. Most of the things that we hear are are fake or attempting to manipulate us, but you can trust the word of God. And so if you're doubting your identity, if you're not sure who you are, just pay attention here. Listen to the word of God about you. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new has come. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is who you are because of who he is. Let's worship Jesus together.